thank you all for being here. Um, I, I wanted to just kind of piggyback a little on what Hannah was saying about how grateful I am for all the many things that are happening here. For the youth ministry, for the music ministry, for the children's ministries. I, I was saying this morning over in the other service um, how much my, my sons enjoyed being a part of the kids' mission camp this last week and how my son came home every day excited about the things he was learning and the, the opportunities to be out and serving um, in this community and coming home and telling me about all he had learned. Um, so as we, we look to our scripture this morning, um, you, you may have recognized some of this. Um, and it would frankly be possible to do an entire sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. I could break down every piece of it and, and do something different every single week. Whole books have been written on these few lines of text. Everything from uh, short devotionals like Roberta Bondi's A Place to Pray to thick academic tomes uh, such as a, uh, an entry in the Interpretation Commentary series that's 400 and something pages long just on the Lord's Prayer. So, so I hope you will bear with me as I try and do justice to this in only a few minutes. Um, so there are several factors for us to consider as we look at this text here today. Last week I mentioned that the Gospel of Luke is probably my, my favorite gospel. Um, and when I talked about my love for the Gospel of Luke, I, I mentioned briefly some of the reasons for that. Um, Luke focuses on the servanthood of Jesus and Jesus' call for us to serve others. Um, Luke shows an elevation of the role of women in that first uh, community of believers. Um, and Luke also at times uh, highlights the sometimes contradictory things that seem to be happening in Jesus' life. So as we talked about last week, there was a village that refused to welcome Jesus and his disciples wanted to destroy it. But Jesus is like, no, no, it's okay. And then just a few verses later, he's telling the disciples that he sends forward, well, those that don't welcome us will have it really bad uh, in the kingdom of God. So it's things like this that really make me wrestle with what Luke is trying to tell us in this image of the kingdom of God but today we are reminded of another piece of this that, that makes this a favorite for me. And that is that Luke is constantly showing Jesus taking time to be in prayer. Throughout this gospel, Jesus is seen in moments of prayer. Jesus begins his ministry in prayer at his baptism He's praying as the Spirit descends upon him. Jesus prays before calling his disciples. Jesus prays before he gives the sermon on the plain. Jesus is praying on the mountaintop at his transfiguration. He's praying in the garden when he is arrested. He's praying on the cross as he dies. After the resurrection, he returns and continues to pray with his disciples. So at the beginning of today's text, it comes as no surprise that we're again told that Jesus was praying in a certain place. So after observing all these moments of 
prayer and observing the way that Jesus seems particularly empowered and filled with the Spirit because we have to remember the disciples haven't quite figured out yet that Jesus is God, the Son of God. And so they see him praying constantly and they see how this is affecting his ministry. So of course they're like, hey, maybe we should ask him to teach us to pray. Now this wasn't necessarily a new thing. As the disciples say, teach us to pray just as John had taught his disciples. So the request to be taught to pray really isn't that surprising or unusual. So Jesus obliges them and he says, when you pray, say, Pater agiostito to onama su... I'm just kidding. Just kidding. See, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, so it would have started with uh, Abba. Of course, in English, we say Father. Jesus starts the prayer off with an intimate address for God. God is not distant and impersonal. God does not require communication to be mediated through priests or through sacrifices. God is as present to us as a father should be. And I know that that may not be everyone's experience of their father or of their mother. But rather than judging God by our experiences of our own father, we should be judging our earthly fathers by the love shown to us by God. So Jesus is telling his disciples two things here. First, he is clarifying that, that God does not require an intermediary. He's not the first to suggest it, but he's making it very clear. God does not require us to go to certain people to pray for us. God doesn't require to go to only a certain place to pray. God is present. Jesus prays all the time, all over the place. He's always taking time to be in prayer wherever he is. As he's traveling through the countryside, as he's taking a boat across the sea, as he's getting ready for important points in his ministry, as he heals someone who is in need, he takes the time to pray wherever he is. And so it's this example that the disciples are going to be following as they pray. Second, Jesus makes this prayer about relationship. When we look at his use of father language, he's talking about the relationship that exists there. God wants a relationship with us. God is not just a cosmic butler that we bring our checklist to to say, hey, can you do this stuff for me? God wants a relationship. And so that's why Jesus refers to God as Father. Of course, for Jesus, it's a little different. But he's still teaching his disciples to use that same language. A parent is not some third party that we have some kind of transactional relationship with. A parent is one that we want to spend time with, that we love, that we care for, that we enjoy their company parent is someone that you go to for more than just you need some extra cash this month or you need some last minute child care. Maybe you go for those things too, but 
that's not all that relationship is about. And so this is what Jesus is trying to teach them. We go to God because we have a relationship with God, not just because we need things. Jesus is also making clear that God is our parent is not just about blood relationships either. God may have a father-son relationship with Jesus, but by teaching the disciples that they also are to refer to God as father as they pray, Jesus is making it clear that family doesn't require blood relationships. Sometimes those that father us are someone outside of our family. Sometimes those who mother us are someone else. But it also means that as we come together, as we sit before God, as we think of God in our relationships, we recognize that that makes all of us sitting here sisters and brothers. Again, a relationship that doesn't require us to be related by at least human blood. So Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. He teaches them that God is someone with whom they are meant to have a relationship. Prayer is not just about that laundry list of wants and needs. Prayer is about relationship between us and God. But what about those other words that are there? Now you probably noticed that the language in the version that we heard today was a little or maybe a lot different from the version of the prayer you may be used to. So first of all, even though Jesus says these are the words we're meant to use, I don't think any of us here are regularly praying in Aramaic or Greek because those are the words that Jesus might have used. We use our own language as we pray. One of the most meaningful experiences of the Lord's Prayer that I ever had was when I was in seminary and we would gather together as a community for worship and we had um, people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, from countries around the world represented in our worshiping community. And so when we would come to the Lord's Prayer, when we would pray it, we would encourage people to pray in the language that was closest to their hearts. And so I would hear people praying in English, in Korean, in Spanish, in French. I would hear trespasses mixed with debts and sins. It was truly a blessing to hear people praying the same prayer in their own way. Each was using different words, but it was the same faith and the same commitment that was being shown to pray as Jesus had showed us to pray. Now, as I've discussed before, each translation of text also involves interpretation. So this is part of the reason we get the different words. So sometimes one word might mean trespasses in some cases, or it might mean debts, or it might mean sins. And so we settle on the word that seems to make most sense to us in the context and in our place. And sometimes it depends on what tradition we're brought up in, on what 
word that we use there. Even the same word in the same language can shift meanings as I think our common understanding of trespassing today is probably a bit different than it was in the time of King James when the version of the prayer that many of us are familiar is was written. And so we may be familiar with certain language that sounds flowery or religious to our ears now, even though it was just once the common language of the people. This does not mean that the words are wrong, but it also doesn't mean that someone using different words is wrong. Each translation and interpretation is done, we should hope, out of a desire to be faithful to what it was that Jesus was trying to share with us, what it was the gospel writers were trying to share with us. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he shares a new intimacy with God. He shares some words that he thinks make sense in that time and place. But you probably notice that the version that we read today is a little shorter and is missing some of the words that we're most familiar with. Some of these words come from other ancient texts or were added over time. Some of them come from the Gospel of Matthew, where a version of this prayer also appears. In fact, um, the form of the Lord's Prayer that most of us are familiar with can be found pretty much in its entirety uh, in the King James Version of the Bible in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6. And yet, some of the words, even there, the translators were like, well, some of our ancient texts have these words and some of them don't, so we're just going to include them because they seem to make sense for the context we're using here for prayer. So that begs the question, though, then, which ones are the original words of Jesus? I mean, what do we do with the words that show up in our prayer that sometimes don't show up in any of the biblical translations, but they still find their way into our prayer that's so meaningful for many of us. And in the end, we just can't know with absolute certainty. I mean, when we look back at the oldest texts that are available to us, the oldest fragments of a gospel story come from the second century at the earliest, you know, so... We're talking a hundred years after Jesus' resurrection are the oldest pieces of paper or papyrus or parchment or whatever that we can find that have any of the words that match the Gospels as we know them today. So what do we do with that? How do we wrestle with this language that shifts over time, language that's always evolving The best we can do is continue to pray out of our faith, continue to pray in that relationship with God, continue to try and have a relationship as similar to the one that we see in the example of Jesus as we can. And so we look at Jesus again, teaching his disciples to pray. He teaches a relationship with God based on certain principles. He teaches them some words and others have been added along the way. 
And even those, though those of us here are not praying usually in Aramaic or Greek, we still follow this same pattern of prayer as we pray that we see here in the Scriptures. And so maybe in the end, this is kind of the point that we can draw out of this. Maybe the specific words themselves are not nearly as important as the way that Jesus was praying. Perhaps we can draw some clues from the shape of this prayer that we have here for us that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And so we see that Jesus uses an intimate and familial address for God. For Jesus, God is Father. God is parent. God is as close as a family member. And so this has profound implications not only for our relationships with God, but with each other. If God is parent to us all, we are all sisters and brothers, all of us. And this plays directly into the teachings that Jesus shares with us and plays directly into the understanding of the early churches where they called each other sister and brother and lived together as families in many cases. Beyond the naming of God, Jesus also acknowledges a characteristic of God. In this case, God's name is holy. God is both close and intimate as well as holy and sacred. In the Hebrew tradition, no one is allowed to speak the name of God. It's forbidden to write down the name of God. No one is allowed to say it. So this statement is an acknowledgement that God's name is holy without actually naming God. God's name. In fact, there are some arguments that in the original prayer as Jesus was praying, what he was trying to say is the name, which was a shorthand in Hebrew for speaking of God, the name is holy. God's name is holy. And so we address God, we acknowledge God, and then we ask God for something. What is it we're requesting? In this prayer that Jesus uses, the focus is on family relationships, not just on individual needs. Jesus is teaching them to pray for everybody, not just themselves. He teaches them to pray for God's kingdom, a kingdom that will be available for all people. He teaches them to pray that our needs are filled not my needs. He teaches them to pray for our forgiveness, not just my forgiveness. We do not pray solely for individual salvation, individual needs, and individual sins. We pray for each other. And then we close our prayer by naming what we hope to happen as a result, if God gives us what we ask, what do we expect to happen? And in this prayer, Jesus makes it clear that the results of God's kingdom, a kingdom in which our needs are met and our sins are forgiven, is that we will be saved from trial, from temptation, from evil. This is the end result for all of us when we are praying to be saved from evil, when we are praying for 
our needs to be met, our sins to be forgiven, for God's kingdom to be present for us all, we are also praying that we will all be saved. In teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus gives them a prayer that lays out a vision for a new world, one in which we are all connected as one family under God. Jesus does not teach his disciples to pray for individual salvation or individual needs. He teaches them that we are meant to have a family relationship with each other and with God. And we still have that same thing to learn today. Probably comes as no surprise when I say that language is always changing and evolving. None of us today still speaks Elizabethan English. I would bet few, if any of us, could read something written in Old English. Few of us are reading the stories of the Hebrew people in ancient Hebrew. Few of us are reading the tales of Jesus and his disciples in Greek. But this doesn't mean that God stops talking to us. God continues to speak to us through these words written 2,000 years ago or more. And God continues to speak to us today as we continue to study and to struggle to understand. And God continues to speak to us as we come to God in that relationship of prayer. As our understanding of the context and the words changes, the one thing that doesn't change is Jesus' insistence on a relationship between us and God and between us and each other. This is the core of Jesus' teaching and ministry, and it rests at the core of the biblical witnesses available to us. And even as we continue to quibble sometimes over what particular words mean, or in some cases, what that one word that appears only in that one place in the Bible and no one can find evidence of anywhere else outside of the Bible and so we really don't know what it means anyway so we're just making it up. Even so, we come to the word with a commitment to understand it in the way that Jesus was insisting through relationship with God and through relationship with each other. And so as we prepare to go back to our everyday lives, I want us to think about how we pray. When we pray, are we approaching God as a loving parent with whom we have a relationship? Or is God some sort of distant idea Are we including others in our prayers? Are we praying for the needs of other people? Are we asking for others to be forgiven? Are we asking for others to be included in God's kingdom? At the end of the day, regardless of the words he actually spoke, this is the model of prayer that Jesus gives to us. In keeping with his call to renew relationships, he gives us a glimpse into his own internal prayer life. He models for us what that relationship looks like as he stops to pray in the midst of all of the things going on in his life. At times, stopping even in the middle of busyness to take that time away. 
He gives us a form of prayer that makes it clear that we are not alone. And so as we go forth today, let us do so in the knowledge that we are all sisters and brothers connected through Jesus. And as we seek out God in prayer, may we remember that God wants to be in a relationship with all of us. May it be so.